0: Thank you, buddy. Wayne. Those of you who are visiting with us, we're glad you're here. Uh, We enjoy this class because we go through the Bible, and the Bible ministers to us. The Lord ministers to us through His Word. The Lord says in Psalms, He said, "I sent My Word to heal thee." The Lord heals us through His Word. Uh, Buddy mentioned Jewel Fox. Some of you knew Jewel, some of you did not know Jewel. She's been in our class for two and a half years or so. And she sat right over at this table. And this is some of her dearest friends right here. Jewel was born in 1921. So you do the math. What's that make it? 87 years old. And uh, that's why George Smith always liked to sit next to her. Made him feel like a teenager. (laughs) Thank you. George is like some of those gigolos. He always hunts for an older woman, you know? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, But uh, Jill was a real precious lady. We loved her. Uh, this class became her family. Uh, she was over at the Plymouth Park Baptist Church and got to a point where she couldn't drive, you know, on a regular occasion and Dickie Springfield started bringing her to this class. And she struggled whether she should join this class. She thought she'd be abandoning her old church, you know, but uh, she just fell in love with especially the people around her table in this class and she was a really special friend to Lynn, my wife, uh, when I was installed as the uh, Criswell professor of preaching, she came to that installation service and she's been precious to us. So uh, we're going to miss Miss Jewel. I looked at, uh, I had to attend an annual leadership meeting that was scheduled months in advance and I, so I couldn't do the funeral. It was a very, it was a struggle for me. And uh, Eric Williams did a great job. I heard, heard he sang two songs. Now, I've only sung one in funerals, so Eric's <laughs> sung two. But I looked up Jewel's name in, in the scripture, and I saw there are three places in the Bible where the word Jewel is mentioned. Very interesting. Uh, uh, the first place was, the scripture says, the lips of knowledge are like a jewel. The lips of knowledge are like a jewel. That means that uh, when you get somebody who gives you wisdom, gives you advice, good advice, Uh, that's precious. It's like a jewel. And then the other time is when God rescues Israel out of her sins. She's been in captivity, Babylonian captivity, and he delivers her, and he says, and I will put a jewel on your head. And uh, that means, you know, I should have, God could have just let Israel remain in Babylonian captivity, but he loved her, and he rescued her. He considered her his wife. And then he decks her out. In a jewel. That's how precious she is. It's like the uh, prodigal son when he comes home and his father says, put the best robe on, get the best calf out, and put the biggest ring you can find on his hand. That man loved his son. And uh, one other time it says that uh, it talks about putting a jewel on a pig. Putting a jewel on a pig. And the Bible talks about that to show how out of uh, sync that would be. You'd never put a jewel on a pig. And uh, so it shows you that when God gives jewels, he's giving them to us as something that's very precious because he loves us. And so we have these crown jewels, you know, in Great Britain, and when anybody wants to talk about something that's the best, they always call it the jewel of, the jewel of the Orient, or the jewel of the Nile, or, you know, whatever. And uh, jewel was very precious to us, and, and we're going to miss it, so... Um, <clears throat> If you didn't know Joel, uh, you asked Dickie Springfield and some of her friends, and they'll tell you about it. Uh, Yesterday at the leadership meeting, uh, usually what I do is I usually will say something about the former president of the class. uh, Troy Hunter was not there because he ended up having to deal with a business affair at work. It was a big mess up, and he had to sort of rescue the company. So, Uh, but (laughs) Troy was a great president. You know that? He was was definitely organized, he had his notebook, and had a sense of humor, and kept us right on track, and most of all, Troy's a church man. Troy, we appreciate the year service that you gave us, So thank you very much for that. And where's Buddy? Buddy's got big shoes to fill, but you know what? (laughs) Troy had big shoes to fill as well when he came in, so Buddy, just take your time, get oriented, and everything is going to work out fine. Now, take your Bibles and turn to Luke chapter 13. Luke chapter 13. And we have a story here of Jesus healing a woman. And as I mentioned last week, after our Sunday school lesson, we're going to pray for the sick. And we're going to have three stations where if you want prayer... Uh, that you can go to. One will be over in this area, one will be back here in this area, and one will be over in that area where we have some room. And I'll be explaining that more, but uh, if you, if the Lord, if you've just been sick and haven't been able to get over this sickness, uh, we want to pray for you today. So we'll talk more about that after the lesson. But we're going to start at verse 10, uh, Luke 13 and verse 10. And today we begin a new section, and we're going to see that we have a new setting as well. Uh, This last section went from chapter 951 to 13.9. That was a section within the, the Gospel of Luke. And now we start a brand new section that extends for several chapters. Now look at verse 10. It says, as Jesus was teaching in one of the synagogues, now Jesus was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath. Notice that word Sabbath, it's mentioned five times in this passage, which means it's a very important word, and that's what Luke wants us to understand. And the setting is Jesus is in a synagogue. Now, Jesus has not been in a synagogue for chapters. In fact, in that entire last section, he didn't step foot inside of a synagogue. Now, he may have, but Luke didn't record it. The last time we saw Jesus in a synagogue was in the sixth chapter. And when Jesus goes into the synagogues, he usually faces hostility by the leaders who try to stop him from saying what he wants to say and do what he wants to do. And this is going to be uh, a very similar occasion. So Luke goes on and he tells the story. Now look at verse 11. Luke says, now behold. He's trying, this is an attention grabber for those of us who are reading. He wants to get our attention. Old King James says, whoa. Or Look. Look. Luke says, as he wants to draw you into the story. There was a woman who had a spirit of infirmity 18 years, and she was bent over and could in no way raise herself up. Now, when you look at that verse, you'll notice several things. First of all, you notice the source of her problem. It says a spirit of infirmity. This probably means that she is bound in some way by... Satan. Satan is the god of this world. He has this world bound. And some physical sickness is a result of that. Could mean she had an attitude of infirmity. I mean, it could be that her mind and the stress in her life caused her infirmity. But most likely it has some sort of demonic element. Now notice the second thing. Notice how long she was sick. She was sick for 18 years. Now what makes this significant? Have you ever heard the word 18 before? Last week, in verse 4, notice, Jesus talks of a tower that fell, and there were 18 on whom the tower of Siloam fell and killed them. There's the word, the number 18. And why is Luke giving us the story of a woman who's been sick for 18 years? He could have told us of another healing, but guess what? He chooses a healing On a woman who's been sick for 18 years and puts it right here, starting off the new section. For those who are in my Bible expository class, they see that there's a connection now between paragraphs, don't you? And the word 18, I'm I'm having to give these students a lesson here. You see a law of composition and that law is called what? Repetition, right? Yes, Yes, it is. (laughs) (laughs) And so he repeats this. Luke chooses a case where a woman's been sick for 18 years. Now, why does he choose a woman who's been sick for 18 years? Probably because he wants to think back to verse 4, where it talks about 18 people who were killed by the tower. And remember, at the end, he asks a question. He says, were these 18 any worse sinners? Than anyone else in Jerusalem? And the answer is what? No. no. Well, this woman's not a worse sinner. She's not sick because she's a bad sinner. She's no worse sinner than any of us. See? And she gets sick, and the question is not why she's sick. You know what the question is? Why are you still well? Remember that? The question wasn't why did the 18 die, the question is why are you still alive? So. Here she's been sick for 18 years. Now notice also that she's partially crippled. Notice it says she's bent over. Bent over. And then I want you to notice this next phrase. Could not, could in no way raise herself up. Could in no way or under no means or circumstances raise herself up. She tried every possible means... This woman who was bent over to stand straight. She tried everything. In modern parlance or in modern day times, we could have said she went and got acupuncture. and That didn't help. She went to the chiropractor and that didn't help. She went to the doctor and he gave her medicine to take care of her pain thinking. Then she would be able to stand up. Her muscles were relaxed. That didn't help. This woman has tried every single thing and nothing has helped. Notice, It says, could in no way raise herself up. There's no ability there. She had absolutely no ability to take care of her physical situation. Now we come to the solution. The solution. Look at verse 12. But, now, you know, that's a good word, isn't it? We see that. Sometimes it's a good word, sometimes it's a bad word. In this case, it's a good word. But when Jesus saw her, now watch. He called her to himself. And so he sees her in the synagogue. And here's this woman bent over. And he says, come up front where he's teaching. He's sitting down, teaching on a platform most likely. And she has to shuffle her way up through the audience and stand there at the front. And then he says in verse 12, he said to the woman, you are loosed from your infirmity. Very important word, loose. You are loosed from your infirmity. That just makes that statement. Now, let's remember the first time Jesus was in a synagogue in Luke's gospel. That was back in Luke chapter 4. Remember that? That may have been the most important passage in all of Luke's gospel. That's where Jesus goes into the synagogue of Capernaum, and he quotes Isaiah 61, 1 and 2, and he says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, and he has anointed me to proclaim the good news to the poor, to proclaim, watch, liberty to the captives. I'm going to proclaim it. I'm going to say, You are loosed. To those who are bound, I'm going to say, You are loose.'" And then he said, and, not only to proclaim it, and to set the captives free. He won't only say it, he will set them free. And that passage in Luke 4 informs us all about the remainder of Luke's gospel. And so now we see Jesus here in a synagogue, and guess what? What he said he would do in chapter 4, he does today. And they are seeing it fulfilled. They are seeing it fulfilled happen right before their own eyes. The the miracles and the circumstances that are associated with the kingdom of God has arrived right here on the scene on this Sabbath day in this synagogue. And they are the recipients of this ministry of Jesus, this kingdom ministry of Jesus. Now look at verse 13. Now he didn't only proclaim that she was free, and he laid his hands on her, And immediately, she was made straight. This is what happened to her. She was made straight and glorified God. This was what was done by her. What was done to her, she was made straight. What was done by her, she glorified God after Jesus laid his hands on this woman. Now, here's my question. What would have happened back in verse 12 when Jesus said, woman, come forward? What would have happened if she hadn't come forward? See, because back in verse 12, he saw her and called her to him. How about if she wouldn't have come forward? Would he have said the next thing after she got there? You're loose. Would he have been able to lay hands on her? Would she have straightened up? Would she have glorified God? Look, there had to be obedience. Obedience. This is the problem, I think, that many of us have. We don't act in faith. Remember the man who was at the pool of Bethesda, and he was on a mat, and Jesus said, do you want to be healed? He asked him a question. you want to be healed? The guy said, yeah. He said, well, then get up. What happened if he wouldn't have gotten up? How many said, I want to be healed? And Jesus said, well, get up. And he said, well, I can't get up. Guess what he had to do? even if he couldn't get up, guess what he had to do? He had to get up. Try to get up. And when he did, he was loosed. It's an amazing thing. Person with the palsy. Arms shortened. Jesus says, stretch forth your arm. Now if that were me, i I can't stretch forth my arm. He said, stretch forth your arm. Guess what the guy had to do? He had to stretch forth his arm. He had to be obedient. So this woman had to respond in order for the rest, to happen. Now look at the reaction. I told you there's hostility. And this case is no different in the synagogue. But, now we come to a bad but, but the ruler in the synagogue answered with indignation. That's a word that you can just tell what it means by its sound, can't you? Now why was he indignant? Because Jesus had healed On the Sabbath. And he said to the crowd, the ruler turned, whips around, and he starts speaking and takes over the service. And he says to the crowd, there are six days on which men ought to work. Therefore, come and be healed on one of those six days. And not on the Sabbath. Now, this man is appealing to the law of Moses, the fourth commandment, like the Seventh-day Adventist. The Sabbath is the big thing for the Seventh-day Adventist. And this man is saying, he's appealing to the fourth commandment, and he's saying, you're not supposed to work on the Sabbath. By healing this woman, you're working on the Sabbath. She ought to come and... On one of the other six days that she wants to be healed, if any of you are thinking about getting healed, you show up on Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday, but don't you show up on the Sabbath. Now, what's the man saying? What's he saying here? I think, number one, he's saying we have an obligation to follow the law. So, I mean, I think that he is defending the law of Moses. He's trying to be a good Jew. Because if you look at that word... Ought. Do you see that in verse 14? There are six days on which men, look at this, ought or should work. That word ought, an old King James word, carries with it moral necessity. Uh, We're under a moral obligation to work six days, but we're under a moral obligation on the seventh day to rest. That is a moral imperative that we're under. He's trying to defend the law. But also, you know what he's saying? This woman's problem wasn't life-threatening. She'd been sick for 18 18 years. What's another day? You know, she could have waited the next day to be healed. And if any of you are coming and your situation isn't life-threatening, you don't have to come on the Sabbath and break the law. We're under an obligation to keep the law. So that's what... The ruler says. And he's actually quoting from Deuteronomy chapter 5 where the Ten Commandments are listed and they're explained. Now look at verse 15. We have Jesus' response. Then Jesus answered, now by the way, that would sound pretty decent. Well, you know, that sounds pretty good what that man says, but look what Jesus says. He answered him and said, hypocrite. <laughs> hypocrite. Some translations say hypocrites. You're all a bunch of hypocrites. That's a way to endear yourself to a crowd, isn't it? Hypocrites. <laughs> and then he asked a question, a probing question. He says, does not each one of you on the Sabbath loose his ox or donkey from the stall and lead it away to water? And the answer is what? Yes. Even on Saturday, your donkey, who's tied up, needs water. Your ox needs water. You will lead it away, and you'll give it water. What's Jesus saying? Jesus is saying, is that life-threatening? Getting your donkey a drink of water? That's not life-threatening. You can go without water for three days. (laughs) That wasn't life-threatening. But guess what? You taking your donkey to the water, that's work. At least according to your definition. But you do it. That's why he calls them hypocrites. (laughs) See, you're defining the law one way and you want me to put me under that obligation, but you don't keep the very definition that you've given. And that's not what God meant anyway. Taking that donkey to the water is not life-threatening. Now look at verse 16. Now look what he says. So... Ought not this woman, being a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan has bound, now think of it, he says, for 18 years, be loosed from this bond on the Sabbath? That's a question. And the answer is, yes, she should be loosed on the Sabbath. Now, what Jesus is doing here, I believe he's making a comparison. If a donkey can be Loose and taken to water. How about a person? Which one's more important? If a donkey or an ox that's just been bound for a few hours can be freed, how about somebody that's been bound for 18 years? Shouldn't they be allowed to be free? Here's a comparison. This woman has much more of a situation. If a lowly beast can be freed, how about a daughter of Abraham, a woman who's under the covenant of God, whom God loves and created for a special reason, for redemptive uh, purposes, shouldn't she be freed? And the answer, C, is yes. If a donkey can be freed from a rope, if it ought to be freed from a rope, shouldn't this woman ought to be freed from the bonds of Satan? And the answer is what? Yes. Yes. And notice again the word ought. Ought. We're under, not only you should you do it, you're under a moral obligation to do it even on the Sabbath. And so what Jesus said he would do back in Luke 4, that he would set the captives free, he does right here now in their presence in this synagogue on this Sabbath. And so what we have is that the kingdom of God, the the miracles and the manifestations of the kingdom of God are being fulfilled. They are at hand. The kingdom in some way is here right now. And the implication is therefore don't hinder what God's doing and don't hide behind some piety and try to stop him from doing what he wants to do. Because that's what you have happening here. So the mission is fulfilled and uh, the ruler simply can't see it. He doesn't see what's happening. He's looking at it from a different perspective. He's blind to what God's doing. Now look at verse 17. And when he had said all these things, these things, all of his adversaries were put to shame. Now they tried to put him to shame. They tried to make a public spectacle of him, but he made a public spectacle of them. They were more concerned about their donkey than they are a woman. Just like Jonah. Remember when he went to Nineveh and God spared the people? And Jonah went and he sought that God would spare all these people. And he said he sat under a little bush, a little gourd he fell asleep when he woke up, a worm had eaten the gourd. And he was like, oh, my, my gourd! I'm going to get my head burned. I'm going to get sunburned. I'm not protected. The gourd, the gourd. Look, the gourd's destroyed. He was more concerned with the gourd than he was with the whole population of Nineveh. And this man's concerned with a donkey more than he's concerned with this woman. Being loosed from the bonds of Satan. So Jesus, by giving that example, puts them to shame. And all the multitude, they rejoiced. The crowd, they were, they were thrilled for all, the, for all the glorious things that were done by him. So there's the mirror. Okay? Still with me? Now we're going to find the lesson that Jesus gives based on this mirror. Okay? Look at verse 17. Verse verse 18, rather. Then he said, some translations say, therefore he said, based on what he's just done, based on the miracle, Jesus now teaches something. He's going to teach us a lesson. And here it is. Therefore, he said, what is the kingdom of God like? And to what shall I compare it? Well, that's a good question. What's the kingdom of God like? What would you compare it to? he says it is like a mustard seed which men took and put in which a man took and put in his garden and it grew and it became a large tree or a large bush and the birds of the air nested in its branches now that's what the kingdom of god's like now why is he saying In verse 18, then he said to them, what is the kingdom of God like? Because he's given them a demonstration of what the kingdom of God's like in the synagogue. There's healing. There are miracles. There's salvation. There's deliverance. Satan loses territory. And now he's going to explain it. He says, now based on this, what is the kingdom of God like? I'll tell you what it's like. It's like a mustard seed. Doesn't seem very important. Doesn't look like a big deal. It's just a small seed. The farmer puts it in the ground. Seems like something pretty insignificant. It's hidden from you. You put it in the ground. You plant it. No one even knows that it's there unless they happen to see you put it in the ground. You were the farmer and you said to your neighbor, hey, I put a seed in the ground and you believe your neighbor. You accept his telling you that he did it. You believe that he did it. But otherwise, you don't even know it's there. First of all, it's so small, you can hardly see it, and then you plant it in the ground, you can't see it. And every day, I imagine hundreds of people walk by that field, by the roadside where that's planted, and guess what? They don't even know it's there. It's totally hidden, it's totally out of sight. If you would have asked people in the town about a mustard seed that was in the ground, they wouldn't even known about it. Now, that's what you have right here. You have Jesus doing one thing in a synagogue, totally out of sight from the population of the world. Most people don't even know about it except the 100 people maybe or 60 people that were in the synagogue. So unless they were eyewitnesses to this miracle, they wouldn't even have known that it happened. Would you agree with that? People could walk right past the synagogue and not know what had gone on inside. Well, that's what the kingdom of God's like. But remember, the mustard seed grows into a what? Big bush or big tree. And even birds of the air can come in and nest. And the result is large. And once the mustard seed takes root and the tree grows up, then guess what? Everyone can see it. Everyone can see it. What started out as insignificant and small. And most people were not even aware of it. One day comes when everyone's aware of it. And it's so big that even the birds of the air can come and they actually make their homes there. They just settle in and make their homes. That's what the kingdom of God's like. This guy might have thought it was insignificant. Ah, she can wait for Monday. Hey, this is what the kingdom's made of. And one day, guess what? Everyone's going to be healed. And the whole world will know about the kingdom. And the glory of God and everybody will be glorifying God. It won't just be the multitude or the crowd that's in that synagogue. They'll all be uh, magnifying God. Now look at verse 20. And again he said, And what shall I like in the kingdom of God? Same question. Ah, it's like leaven, which a woman took. And she hid in three measures of meal. Until, ooh, that's a important word, until it was all leavened. Same thing. You have a handful of yeast, you have a bushel or two of meal, totally insignificant. She takes it in, she throws it in, mixes it up. You look at it, you wouldn't tell it's any different. just looks like the meal. That's how it starts out, but how does it end up? Swollen, big, enough to feed 150 people. 150 people. So, what's the point? The point is Jesus making a contrast between beginnings and endings. <coughs> between how something starts out insignificant, small, hidden, in a small corner of the world called Jerusalem. Majority of the world didn't even know about it. But one day, it grows and it grows and it grows until the kingdom of God involves the whole world and everyone knows about it. A miracle here, a miracle in that obscure synagogue, somebody raised from the dead on the road. That's the beginning. No one even knows about it. But in the end, it'll encompass the whole world and everyone will know about the kingdom of God. Has a small beginning, has a big ending. It begins with Jesus. And he's baptism and then going into the synagogue in Luke 4. And it comes in its fullness when He returns. And God is all in all, and the kingdom of God encompasses the whole world. You know, it's growing right now, the kingdom of God. When Jesus started out, He only had twelve people. First, it was only Jesus. Then He found, you know, a couple, and then they found a couple brothers and sisters and people like that. And one of them left Him. Well, and guess what? Now you come into Dallas, I see a church on every corner. I see people raising their hands worshiping God all the time. Hey, can the church be ignored now? The church is a manifestation of the kingdom right now. It can't be ignored now. We see churches everywhere, and we see kingdom activity and preaching going on. And one day that will be worldwide. The difference is between the kingdom's start and the kingdom's finish. It starts is like a seed. Its finishes is like a tree. It start is like a handful of yeast. Its finish is like 300 loaves of bread. You know, which is enough to sustain everybody. So, the kingdom is here already. The kingdom is here already. But it's not yet here in its fullness. But it's always coming. Always coming. It's always growing. And every inch we take for Christ, is a part, and every part of God's creation we take back for Christ is a part that Satan has to let go and loose. Note. It says in verse 12, Woman, you are loosed. And in verse 15, he says, does not each one of you on the Sabbath, look at this, loose his ox and his donkey? They were concerned about loosing animals to go to the water hole. Jesus is talking about loosening bodies and human souls of God's glory. So Jesus has come to set the captives free. And when the kingdom comes, there's not going to be any more death. There's not going to be any more sickness. The glory of God will shine throughout the entire world. And right now, the kingdom is growing. And I want you to know something. If Jesus healed in the past, he can do it again. The only difference is we just don't believe. We're not obedient. I think if Jesus were here today, and if he, would, if he were here, here, and He saw somebody sick, and He said, come on up, do you think He would heal? Them? Mm-hmm. I think He would. You know, when we look at these miracles in the Bible, that's the beginning. That's the beginning. That's the little thing. When the kingdom comes in its fullness, everyone's going to be raised from the dead. That's the end. That's what it's going to be like. I think Jesus is saying, you ain't seen nothing yet. Mm-hmm. You know, you, things are just starting. <laughs> when it happens, it'll happen fast. So what we wanted to do this week, because we were coming to a healing passage, is we wanted to pray for the sick. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to close out our message here with prayer, and then I'm going give to you, give you some instructions. Can we do that? So let's close our eyes and pray just for a moment. Lord, we thank you for this passage of Scripture, which is so important to us. <coughs> And uh, gives us the context of what Jesus was doing, even in the midst of a hostile uh, people, uh, of people that were divided, some who were blind and couldn't see what you were doing, and others who saw it and glorified you. And now, Lord, we're going to just ask that you do miracles amongst our people. Uh, We are a manifestation of the kingdom. We are your church. Uh, We... Ask, Lord, that you minister to us in our midst even this morning, that Jesus, that you will be glorified and your Father will be glorified. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Now, here's what we're going to do, okay? Some of you are very sick and some of you are chronically sick. Some of you are deathly sick. We're going to have three stations. We're going to have a station back in that area because there's room, okay? We're going to have a station right over here because there's room behind the piano, And we're going to have a station right here near this door because there's some room. And at this station, Dr. Kane, who's a medical doctor, is going to stand up. And David McKinnon is going to be over in that area. And Gene Blaylock is going to be over in that area. And what we're going to do is we're just going to have a moment. And if you want prayer, we're going to simply ask you to get up and go over there. Dr. Kane will say, what's your problem? He'll give you a word of encouragement. He'll say, just like we said in the song today, The Lord is a present help, an ever-present help in your time of need. And then, one of these gentlemen, depending on where you go, will simply anoint you with oil. And when they anoint you with oil, I want you simply to relax and just go and let go and trust God to do something. Okay? And then, depending on who goes up there, you're in that area, you see who goes up there. I'd like one person to go to that person at that point and just put a hand on their shoulder. And then when all that's happened, then we'll close it out with a prayer and asking God to do something. Can we do that? Do it all decently in order. So, Dr. Kane, David McKinnon, G. Blaylock are going to come here. And uh, maybe we can just get some soft music just for a moment. And if you would like us to pray for you, they will just come up, tell them what's wrong. And the rest of us just be in a spirit of prayer. Then they will anoint you. One of your friends will come up, put their hand on your shoulder, and then we'll pray for you.